Welcome everyone to the Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. This is an interesting episode today uh, as we will have one veteran on and two civilians, and they are from the Pan Am Museum Foundation. Now, you might be wondering, why would we have the Pan Am Museum Foundation on? Well, if you follow the Veterans Breakfast Club, you will know that we recently had an episode last year uh, of our live program, Happy Hour, that we always have on Monday nights. Uh, we had a wonderful program with Pan Am flight attendants who served, well, served with Pan Am during Vietnam. They were taking flights in, taking soldiers into Vietnam. These are civilian flights. Uh, it was a really incredible program. Uh, I will link that in the description. Then after that, we did have the Pan Am Museum Foundation on uh, the happy hour. Well, we thought we would continue the conversation here over on the Scuttlebutt. So we invited members of the organization uh, onto the podcast to, to talk more about the history of Pan Am and the relationship between Pan Am and the military, which gets back to my question, why have the Pan Am Museum Foundation on the Scuttlebutt. It's a military podcast. Well, there was a very long history of Pan Am's relationship with the military, which is what we get into. Um, it's very interesting. It's riveting stuff. Uh, and I hope that you'll stick around for the full conversation. You can always like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And please check out all the links in the description. Um, it's a really incredible uh, foundation. So enjoy the show. I'm really excited for the conversation uh, today here on the Scuttlebutt. I'm, I'm welcoming uh, Linda, John L, which I'll say John L and John M uh, here to the program, all from the Pan Am Museum Foundation. Uh, for those of you joining us on the Scuttlebutt, uh, the Veterans Breakfast Club welcomed the uh, Pan Am Museum Foundation uh, members onto the happy hour that we hold, our, our flagship live Zoom program on a Monday night couple months ago, we thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to continue that conversation here on the on the recorded side on the Scuttlebutt. So if uh, if you may have found this Scuttlebutt uh, podcast, and maybe you're, you know, part of the Pan Am family, or maybe you're just interested in Pan Am, Pan Am history, uh, I would say go back to our YouTube channel, Veterans Breakfast Club, and check out that happy hour where there's a lot of history that's detailed within that conversation. But I'm excited to welcome you all to to the Scuttlebutt uh, here to continue that conversation, talk more about the Museum Foundation, talk about the history of Pan Am, but thank you all for taking the time to join me. Uh, John M. joining us uh, by phone, uh, but I'd love to go around the room here and sort of have everybody introduce yourselves for those people, audience members who may have not have seen the happy hour. Uh, Linda, please uh, kick us off. So, welcome to the Scuttlebutt. Great. Thanks so much for having us, Sean. We're really, it's our pleasure to be here and to participate on the show. Um, uh, well, as Sean said, my name is Linda Frere, and I was a Pan Am flight attendant. I started with Pan Am. I was hired in 1979, and, and I was really with the company until it closed its doors in 1991 um, uh, through various capacities, started as a flight attendant, and then had different roles uh, within the flight service management structure, uh, including a base manager at JFK. And at the when unfortunately when Pan Am did close its doors, I had uh, taken a position with Delta Airlines and was fortunate enough to work with Delta and stay in the aviation industry that that I love um, for another 15, 20 years. So it was a, it was a great run um, in the aviation industry with two wonderful airlines uh, that I worked with. Um, so I was I was very very happy to have been able to uh, continue my career my aviation career in different capacities. Uh, in 2013, 
John L, you can correct me, or was it 2011, the Port Authority of New York decided to, um, they needed to tear down what we used to call our home for Pan Amers, which was the World Port at JFK, which was Pan Am's terminal. And that was kind of an impetus for many of us thinking um, we did lose a home. Uh, and uh, upon a request from a fellow colleague in uh, Europe to uh, search out the site of a plaque that locates that is located on um, in Port Washington, New York on the harbor, which indicates and commemorates the first transatlantic flight, mm -hmm. which was of course on Pan Am. And it was from um, Port Washington, New York to Marseille, France on a flying boat. We decided then and there, there was a group of about four of us flight attendants and we said, why isn't there a museum? Why isn't there some tangible evidence? We need a new home. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the impetus, that was the motivation. We, it was kind of like a wild idea to start a museum, even though none of us had a museum experience, it was let's, let's give it a go. And here we are um, six years later and um, we gave it a go and it's, it's, um, it's been so well received. We're very pleased to have um, acceptance and recognition by people such as yourself mm -hmm. and inclusion because there is an incredible story to tell. And you know, John L and John M are here to join us because they're the historians and they have a lot of the detailed information. I'm still learning um, uh, as, a, as, as the most junior in the group here today to uh, be on the team. Uh, I'm the one who um, is still learning about this rich, glorious history and this incredible connection to the United States and to its assistance throughout its 64 years of history in military operations. Thank you, Linda. And John L., uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Um, I'm John Lutich. I am presently the curator and historian at the museum with Linda and uh, our band of brothers and sisters there. Um, I grew up with Pan Am. My mother was an executive secretary for uh, almost 40 years, so I had flight benefits from day one. Um, I also worked for Pan Am myself in various positions on land. I was never in any uh, flight crew operations. I worked in reservations in the Pan Am building, uh, various clerical jobs in New Jersey, and finally the last five years of Pan Am until the end, I was a programmer in the financial area. Um, and I had very good flight benefits. And uh, I'm a history buff. Uh, learning more and more about Pan Am uh, almost every day, especially since I've been with the museum. And uh, what, what else can I say? Uh, apropos of this particular broadcast, I'm 71. So um, my vintage is probably the last generation to serve uh, in Vietnam. I did not have to serve. I took my chances with the lottery and uh, I didn't have to serve, but uh, I was very interested uh, in this subject as well. So mm -hmm. um, that's my story. Thank you, John. And John M., uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us here as well. Uh, you're the, uh, the only veteran here in the group today, but I would love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Sean, very much. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I joined Pan Am in 1964 after an eight-year career in the 
the U.S. Air Force, uh, where I was in the training command and then in the Strategic Air Command. I started my career with Pan Am in Berlin uh, in the Internal German Service. Uh, and I was there for 11 years uh, flying out of Tempelhof Airport, which is a story in itself. And then uh, I returned to the U.S. and checked out uh, in the Blue Water Division, as they call it, um, in the 707, the L-1011, and the uh, 747. I was a captain and Czech airman on all three of those airplanes. And uh, I, I had a stint as a chief pilot in the 1011 operation in Honolulu that we called the Royal Hawaiian Flying Club. And uh, I was uh, with Pan Am right up until the end. In fact, uh, I had the distinct honor, if you can call it such, it was kind of a bittersweet um, operation, uh, of flying the last 747 out of South America on December 4th, 1991. It was the day uh, the whole operation ended. But, um, uh, I've become immersed in Pan Am history and uh, what a glorious history it is. I, I, uh, I cover something new about the airline, you know, practically every day. And um, the airline existed back in the day when uh, air travel was an entirely different experience. And uh, to say that you enjoyed your job was an understatement. You look forward to going to work. Um, but it's a history and a legacy that I think uh, deserves to be preserved and repeated. And thank God for Linda and her um, cohorts that made this whole thing happen. And I'm very, very happy and excited to be a part of it. Thank you, John. And, uh, you know, our audience might be tuning into this particular episode thinking like you're the whole scuttlebutt history of 100 episodes is like built on understanding military culture so why have the pan am museum foundation on john l i thought you might be able to speak to this because what we talked about a bit in the in the happy hour was there's a long history of a relationship between pan am and the military is that right that's correct uh in the 30s uh when one trip the founder of the airline pioneered the crossing of the pacific he needed the blessing of the U.S. government in order to use the, the island stations as fuel stops. And uh, that coincided with the Japanese aggression in the Pacific. And so the, the, uh, the government looked very kindly upon Pan Am's involvement uh, in setting up the stations in, well, they, they went to Honolulu, Midway, Wake, and Guam, and Manila. Um, and further after that, um, well, they all became military bases after Pearl Harbor. And so Pan Am had done all the groundwork, you know, setting up the stations. Uh, later on, uh, when World War II started, it, even before the U.S. involvement, Pan Am was involved uh, in helping the Allies um, support um, in Africa. There was the uh, Pan Am Africa, which set up uh, a ferry service of servicemen and airplanes that 
cross the Atlantic uh, from Belém uh, in Brazil over to West Africa and then on to Cairo, on to Khartoum, and even uh, after that, uh, supplying uh, Chiang Kai-shek um, with the uh, flying over the, Him the, uh, the Himalayas before uh, I think Pan Am initiated that and the government U.S. government took it over, I think, in 1942. Um, but uh, so that's basically the groundwork. Also, we, we helped in Korea as well, and I know that the subject of this program is about Vietnam. So the 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 relationship with the United States government had already been laid, and, and it was there, and uh, it, it just continued on. And that's sort of where BBC kind of found out about Pan Am. We, we, we knew about the, the flight attendants that were flying the R&R &R flights uh, in and out of Vietnam. Right. We thought, let's have a program uh, and highlight their stories. And that has sort of led us to the Museum Foundation and, and has furthered this conversation. It's so interesting. Um, well, John, was in, John M. was involved in those flights. Really, John? Yeah. Um... Pan Am uh, had an uh, operation uh, based in Hong Kong with the uh, DC-6s that uh, were rapidly becoming obsolete because of the introduction of the jets and the determined internal German service. And those DC-6s had a lot of life left in them. So Pan Am signed a contract with the government for cost plus a dollar to operate R&R &R flights in and out of Vietnam uh, from uh, uh, base in uh, Hong Kong and I was based in Berlin at the time and the only DC-6 qualified crew members were in Berlin mm -hmm. so I had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong and was in on the beginning of that operation and I flew it for a number of months and it was an incredible operation when I look back on it now and uh, think of what we did and what the conditions were it was absolutely amazing um we flew in and out of Tansanut, uh in saigon going to bases like uh, da nang and cameron bay and natrang uh and flew in there and picked up a load of gis and then took them to r and r spots such as hong kong and, and bangkok and singapore and tokyo and taipei mm -hmm. and they'd be there for about a week and then uh, they'd get on another Pan Am airplane and we fly them back to, to Vietnam. But the entire country of Vietnam, as I'm sure you, you all know, was a war zone. And flying in and out of there with low uh, piston, um, pre, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam era airplanes was an adventure in itself. Uh, we had to devise our own method of getting in and out of these uh, airports that were most of them surrounded by pockets of Viet Cong that would um, like nothing better to make their day than to shoot down a civilian airliner. So we developed uh, things like the Canyon Approach where you fly over uh, to the airport at 5,000 feet and you fly until the <laughs> the airplane disappeared, uh, the airport disappeared underneath the nose of the airplane 
and you drop the gear and full flaps and put the props in flat pitch and turn the airplane over and pointed the nose right straight down at the ground and pulled out at about 200 feet above ground level, hopefully right at the approach end of the runway and, and landed. And uh, it was it was a pretty exciting approach. Uh, exciting. I would and, not I would not label it as that. <laughs> this is and a DC six. Yeah. Yeah. On takeoff, it was a whole different story because we were normally uh, pretty heavy. We were, you know, going, you know, several hundred miles to our destination, and we had a lot of fuel and a full load of passengers, and so you couldn't climb the way we descended. So uh, the takeoffs were always an adventure. There were times when, uh, after we landed, we'd find bullet holes in the bottom of the airplane. Uh, thankfully, uh, none of them ever did any serious damage, but it was you know, a little disconcerting nonetheless. But uh, it, it was an incredible operation, and the 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 flight attendants were all uh, Pan Am girls that were based in uh, Hong Kong, and they were just absolutely delightful. I mean, the you know these GIs after having been what they'd been through in the trenches in Vietnam to get on an American airliner and see the gorgeous faces of our Pan Am girls who were handing them Cokes and ice cream and feeding them Kobe steaks and so on. It, uh, the more I look back on it, the more I think of what an incredible operation it was. By the way, it, it, it uh, Pan Am's involvement started in 1966. Yeah, that, that's when I went out there. John M, I, you know, there's a couple of questions that pop in my head because you were in the Air Force from 55 to 63, uh, flying B-25s, B-52s, like you mentioned. What was what was the main difference between flying those aircraft and flying, what was it, a D-6? The, the DC-6? Yeah. Uh, well, those airplanes that I flew in the military, they were warplanes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they operated in... Uh, areas and, and under conditions that you would never even think about uh, flying a, a, a civilian airliner into. And um, and taking the DC-6s into a war zone was, um, well, it was a gamble. It, it, uh, it you know, that we could have been in dire straits at, at any time uh, from a lucky shot from a a shoulder-mounted grenade from a Viet Cong somewhere, and uh, we were not only very lucky, but we had some very, very skilled crews. Mm. Um, many of them, um, many of the skippers that uh, we flew with out there were the World War II vets who had actual, you know, wartime experience. So it was a it was a it was a risk, but it was a calculated risk, and the combination of the the skill and the dedication of the crews, both the flight crews and the cabin crews, is what made it work. Was there ever a point there? Because I mean, when you're serving, I, I, you don't really have the option. They're, they're, you're going here; that's where you're going. But you know, when you're yeah. working for Pan Am and and doing the R and R flights, you had maybe the option to say, I don't really want to fly into a combat zone. Did you ever think about that? Like, I'd rather go, you know, fly to Honolulu. No, not for a second. Mm -hmm. Every single one of us were volunteers. We knew what we were getting into. We knew what the war was about and what the conditions were. And uh, we just did it. 
it, it was never any question. Did it was it the idea of continuing to serve those who were who were currently serving? Was there a part of that in that decision? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how, the, go ahead. I think the the, the flight attendants uh, felt the same way. Linda can back me up on that, but I'm sure that was the case. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I I also think it's kind of part of the DNA of people that worked for Pan Am. We knew it was part of our history, yeah. um, and part of our tradition. That, as I like to say when I when I go and I give some talks, that you know, Pan Am's history is kind of interwoven into the history of the United States. It's like a giant tapestry and Pan Am was there along the way throughout its existence. So yeah, I, you know, yes, you always, you did have a choice and and some people, you know, flight attendants might've said, you know, no, I don't think so. Or, you know, something's going on in my life, especially when it came to, we may be talking about Operation Baby Lift later on. Um, but, but the majority of people just said, Sign me up. I'll go. What whatever's needed, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, we were a different, uh, kind of a different breed. I, I don't like to pat ourselves on the back too much, but we. Why not? The the, the Pan Am guys, the and Pan Am crews, uh, in every respect, we're we're a special breed. They were a, a breed apart, mm-hmm. and the uh, the greater perspective that I have. From virtue of time and distance, the more I feel that way. Uh, you know, something I'm picking up here from what what you are saying, and and there is an incredible sense of family and passion for the work that it became the life of everybody that was involved, which is not something you can necessarily say about any other organization for the most part. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily see a Burger King Museum Foundation popping up if Burger King ever shuts down. Uh, but how did Pan Am sort of uh, uh, nurture that? How did they develop that in the organization of, you know, everybody is in this together. Everybody is pointed in the right direction, have the same goal. Everybody's a family. That's an incredible thing that that I think it gets lost a lot nowadays. Well, part of it was the, the, the fact that, you know, the Pan Am um, covered the covered the world, and we we were not just a group of American pilots and flight attendants. There were people from all over the world that were involved in this in this incredible airline. And I think one uh, little item that maybe illustrates that is the fact that Pan Am's been out of business for what twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight years. Thirty one. Thirty. Yeah. Yeah, for however many it is. And virtually every year, there's a reunion somewhere that draws hundreds and hundreds of people every year mm-hmm. from just the, the Pan Am group. Every and, month. And we family, <laughs> it's the ultimate definition of family. We certainly felt that uh, after we did our flight attendant program. We realized in looking at our numbers last year for VBC, how many people viewed each program, Pan Am's program that we put up on YouTube was the most viewed program of anyone that we had done all throughout the year. And we were like, wow, this is an incredible organization of people that all support uh, this, you know, the life that they had there. Yeah. And I, I think also there's an element of the fact that, you know, I, I did flight attendant recruiting. We recruited 
others to come along and join our ranks. And I, and maybe it's something intrinsic. I don't know. Maybe there's something that you identify in a person when you're talking to them that you just know this, I think is going to be the right person. And, you know, there's a series of interviews. It was very competitive, um, but we could still kind of see, you know, it's not hundred percent obviously, but you could still kind of see something in a person that, that, that passion, you could see a spark, you could see something that connected with you, that they wanted to be ambassadors to the world. We knew what we were doing when we, rep when we worked for Pan Am, we represented the United States around the world. We knew that, um, you know, beyond the recruiting, there was training and it was vigorous. It was very involved in cultural understanding and awareness, no matter where we were flying throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so we took that responsibility seriously um, and it was important to us. Um, it was important to us to represent our company, but also to, to represent our country. And John L, th this was also at a time where the the world was suddenly expanding for everyone. If you were if you were recruiting internationally for people, suddenly people were able to fly to places, see new places, you know, visit visit uh, exotic locations. Um, right. Did that was that sort of part of the the, the massive expansion of this family? <clears throat> yeah, well, for Pan Am employees, you know, you, you could fly anywhere. I mean, Asia, Europe, Africa, um, the world literally was our oyster. Um, and uh, it was certainly an education, you know, for, for all of us who, uh, who traveled. Uh, even myself, I was single and I took advantage of those flight benefits and, and I did a lot of, uh, of um, flying, uh, you know, a, a professional tourist, uh, have you. I just wanted to, to add uh, the, the scope of the R&R operation in Vietnam. I just have some uh, statistics. Pan Am flew almost 3 million GIs between 66 and the end of 1970. Uh, so you can imagine the, the, the scope of the operation, which largely was handled by volunteers. Uh, that's an incredible uh, statistic and by the way pan am only charged the government like a dollar per year uh, on top of operating on expenses and, and i think in the long run they they lost money on that but um also those dc6s that john flew coincidentally that they came from germany and they were flying that berlin corridor you know before they uh, they got to vietnam so uh, they had uh, uh, exposure to uh, a lot of foreign soil there was there a reason why uh pan am had such a i mean other than they wanted to do the first uh pacific flight over and they sort of developed that relationship with the government and the military but there was also at the time of Vietnam, there wasn't a whole lot of pro-war sentiment. So there was it was almost against the grain that Pan Am was like, we want to support the military. Was there a reason for that? I can provide you with the press releases uh, that, that Pan Am came out with. Uh, they're, 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 well, I went to high school on, on a college campus. I, I, I went to Fordham College and I also went to Fordham High School, which was on, on the same campus. So and as a kid, I was exposed to a lot of the uh, anti-war demonstrations um, and uh, Pan Am survived that. I mean, they were, they were, I don't 
know exactly uh, how much uh, flack it, uh, the company had to endure, but uh, it certainly had no effect on, on, on the operations. I mean, the, the operations continued day in, day out. I mean, I think it was kind of a continuation of their service, of Pan Am service that had been, you know, initiated years before. Um, and so we were just part of the fabric of assisting the military. Um, we were pivotal in the Pacific during World War II as far as turning the tide and having the airmen and the aircraft able to, um, to, to fly those long, those great distances. Um, so I, I think it was really a continuation. So when, yes, there was such controversy around the war in Vietnam, but I think that in the upper and not having been with a company at the time, or you know, certainly not in any kind of executive role there, there was this sense of this is our responsibility. And also to do something, you know, we were before it became um, a thing to be uh, you know, community service. Pan Am defined what that meant. Mm -hmm. We were country service. We served in the uh, honor of our country. And you know, not only the people, we had a lot of veterans. Most of the pilots, as, as um, John can attest to, and as John is a member of, were veterans. So that was also a part of that DNA of the yeah. people who were employed by the airline. Also, Pan Am began serving Vietnam in 1952. I mean, this is prior to, to the, you know, the, the American involvement in, in the war. So uh, it really, was in foreign territory to, to, to the company. The groundwork had been laid. John L., were, uh, were the R&R flights the only things Pan Am was doing with Vietnam? Uh, be, I'm not sure. Uh, John M., was there also passenger service out of, out of Saigon during the war? Yes, there was. Uh, Pan Am Flight 1 and Flight 2, uh, the round-the-world flights, uh, stopped in uh, Vietnam either once or twice a week. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, when I, when my, my wife and I uh, went out there from Berlin to join the uh, Hong Kong operation, uh, we got on flight two in Frankfurt and it did, as luck would have it, it just happened to be the day of the week that there, uh, that the service stopped in Saigon mm -hmm. and that Antinut Airport, uh, and in the middle of a raging war, and uh, they carried on that uh, scheduled passenger operation is just as though you were operating out of Sacramento or Des Moines or somewhere. Um, and that was I, I with remember, the seven forty seven. No, it was a seven oh seven at that time. Okay, right. Um, and uh, <laughs> as I remember. Uh, the airplane operated in and out of Vietnam at capacity. You know, there were very, very few empty seats. And um, my wife and I were traveling space available and we were hanging by our fingernails trying to stay on the airplane because the next stop out of Saigon was Hong Kong, which was our ultimate destination. And I remember the captain who just coincidentally happened to be John Steers, who was Bob Ford's fourth officer, uh, said to me, he said, uh, if your wife has to sit in my lap, he said, you're get, staying on this airplane. You're not getting off. 
<laughs> and so they filled the airplane up and and sure, I sat in the cockpit on one jump seat, and my wife sat in the cockpit on the other jump seat. And uh, but it was uh, yeah, operating out of Tanzania in those days, regardless of whether it was a scheduled operation or R and R or what it was, was a was an adventure. Um, they used uh, intersecting runways simultaneously, and every once in a while, a, a fire. Um, Airplane would come in having been shot up and had to make an emergency landing, so they had to clear out the entire traffic pattern, which was always full of airplanes. And they sent everybody out north of the airport into a fur ball. It just what's uh, a fur ball? A, a fur ball is a <laughs> it's uh, how to describe it. They just sent airplanes out there willy nilly with no uh, real plan, just to sit out there and just kind of mingle around and circle around and try to stay about out of each other's way until they could clear the um you know the runways for civilian for other operations the the uh, the damaged fighter airplane obviously had um priority mm -hmm. and they had vietnamese controllers that were working in the tower and and you know occasionally would just end up being out of their uh comfort zone out of their realm of uh, capability and then pretty soon you'd hear an american gi's voice on the tower frequency and he'd get everything sorted out and get everybody in order so they could come back in and land it it was unlike anything i had ever seen in my life you definitely make me feel like i never want to fly again <laughs> <laughs> well but your excitement talking about it makes me interested so <laughs> Yeah, in, the, well, in in those in those days, Tansana probably was one of the busiest airports in the world. Which is oh, really, I would not think so. You know, being an active war zone, I, I would not think that it would be a place that you would want to have all of that. No, you you wouldn't want to go in there just unless you had urgent business in, in Vietnam at that time. You you weren't going to go over there and go sightseeing and go to the beaches and stuff. And it was just... Let's get into uh, sort of later on into Vietnam War. There were three specific things that we've, we've chatted about before in, in a different program, but I'd love to touch on here too, was Operation Babylift, uh, the, the uh, evacuating refugees, and the last flight out, which, which uh, you know, led up to the very last flight leaving uh, Tonsonut. But of, the, of those three, the first one that really... Um, I don't want to say take off because that that's a pun, but Operation Babylift uh, was the first that 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 occurred, right? Yes, that was well. Uh, if you want to set a date, that was um, really President Ford had inaugurated what was called or initiated the program for Operation Babylift, and mm -hmm. with the um, the military cargo planes. What what were the planes, John? I. Uh, well, the, the, the first plane was a C-5A and C5A, it yeah. crash, was that April 4th, April 5th? April 4th, April 3rd or 4th, yeah, it crashed at, shortly after takeoff. And, um, and Al Topping, who you've had on this program as well, who was the country manager for Saigon in Cambodia, was on site and um, the government, the military there contacted Pan Am right away to inquire um, if you could get, could they get a plane in um, the very next day? And of course 
Pan Am did, um, and brought in a 747 uh, with an all-volunteer crew again. And we, we at the museum, we had a celebration to commemorate the 47th anniversary of that flight, of the two flights. There were two 747s that were brought in and um, uh, chartered by Holt International, which was the adoption agency, um, to evacuate thousands of Amerasian orphans that were in Vietnam. And so, uh, you know, one flight went to San Francisco, the other one I think went to Portland. Um, and uh, that was an amazing flight. And the testimony that we heard of the, the presentations we heard from three of the flight attendants who worked on board that flight to Portland was just amazing giving the, I think on one of the aircrafts, um, now mind you, this is a 747. Um, there were about 742 um, children and infants on board the aircraft, many oh. bassinets, um, mm -hmm. you know, on the floor, they were strapped in everywhere. The upper deck of the 7-4 was used as a, um, an ER, not an ER, but a um, I, um, intensive care unit for children who were very, very sick. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it changed the lives of all of those people who were on board that aircraft. Mm -hmm. There was, um, uh, you know, medical professionals on board the aircraft as well. There were some doctors that had been working with Holt and some nurses, N not a lot. Um, so really it was the flight attendants who were kind of taking up the, the vast majority of the work, taking care of the babies and changing their diapers. And, and of course they didn't know, but they were giving them, you know, American um, milk bottles um, mm -hmm. And these children's digestive system could not digest the milk. And so if you can imagine on a long flight, and I think they went from um, Saigon to Manila first, I think they went to, I think it was Clark Air Force Base. Um, and those children were sick the entire way. I have trouble dealing with one sick kid. Um, and, and these flight attendants, uh, from what I remember reading, they many of them were not mothers they they you know had never dealt with a, a baby and suddenly they were put into a situation where they had to deal with hundreds of babies hundreds of babies and you know we Kids. have we have a lot of images of you know some of the people who had the presence of mind to take some photos on board the aircraft with literally hundreds of bottles you know on the the galley and the the countertops in the galley. And, and, and if you've ever been on an aircraft in, in the galley, you know, there's not a lot of countertop space. So um, they were, they, I, I can't imagine, I am un, in awe of the, of the women and, and who were working on those flights. Mm -hmm. They were amazing. And how did the refugee flights come about? Well, Pan Am had operated um, flights, as John mentioned, flight one and two around the world. And we had been taking people out of Vietnam Oh, for at least, I think from like 1972 through um, 1975, through that last flight out. Mm -hmm. um, there were probably, besides the orphans, there were many refugees, 20 to 40 to 60 per aircraft um, for the regularly scheduled flights. And, and now when you reference refugees, are you talking about that particular last flight out or just uh, people... I think overall, Pan Am was a part of that, or at least getting people out uh, for a, a significant amount of time uh, prior to the last flight out. Yes. Um, you know, the, the whole government in South Vietnam, is, as John M. can probably attest, you know, was, was broken. Um, it was full of, there was 
you know, people were scared. They, it was obvious that the North Vietnamese were going to be invading the South. It was just a matter of when and, and time. So people were desperate to get out. And I think we've all seen images. I grew up um, in, the, in the 70s seeing the images on the news of the people desperate to, to get on a, a plane or a helicopter or any type of, get to an American establishment, you know, military establishment of some sort to just to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people were getting um, all kinds of, they were trying to get documents from their government. Um, as Al loves to tell the story, and again, there's a, there's a man who I have, I am in awe of that he had the presence of mind to do what he did in, um, getting documentation for probably, um, I'm gonna say several hundred American, uh, not American, Vietnamese uh, to get them out of Vietnam. And they had some relationship one way or another to employees. Pan Am's commitment was we will get all of our employees out, all those that wanna leave, we will get them out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, Having worked with Operation Babylift just a few weeks before, he knew that if he could adopt 700 people, <laughs> um, that he might have a chance because getting them through the paperwork to get their visas was just not going to happen. Yeah. You know, like I said, the, the government, the infrastructure in South Vietnam and Saigon was broken. And um, he, he knew he was going to have to pay some, some bribe money to people. Um, but getting them adopted proved to be the easy, not easy, but easier way and quicker way, most expeditious way, I guess, to get um, them papers to leave the country. And so he went through, he had his assistant um, process adoption papers for, you know, hundreds of people. And yeah. he had all their names. And, and, and if you've seen the movie Last Flight Out or you've read the book um, and Al has his book out, Flight to Freedom, um, it, it's it's an amazing story of really working against the wire and knowing, and in um, as Al will also say, he knew that it was likely the North would invade Saigon and have the tanks rolling in around May Day, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the revolution, the date of the revolution. And so he knew that he had to have a last flight out prior to that um, without raising any suspicion that they were pulling out. An unbelievable situation that Al Topping was in. If you're listening to the scuttlebutt and you, you know this is the first time you've heard of Al Topping's name, he was in charge of all Southeast Asia and, and was was stationed in uh, in at Tonsonut in, in Saigon, correct? In Saigon. Yeah, in Saigon. He lived there. He was actually at tour in April of that of seventy five. He was living at the airport at that point. He had to leave his home, and um, he he was living at the airport, sleeping on a cot. Right. We'll have the link in the description for uh, his appearance on our our BBC Happy Hour program. He was uh, played by James Earl Jones in the Made for TV movie Last Flight Out. I also have the link there because you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, which I did. It's an incredible movie. Um, there should be an update. They should remake it. Yes. They do enough remakes nowadays. They should remake it. We agree. Um, we agree. But, but Al's uh, incredible story. Again, I'll, I'll put the link uh, to, to um, his book, um, Flight to Freedom, also in the description if you're interested in reading about his story, which, like you said, just what he had to manage in those couple months, uh, you know, I wouldn't wish on anybody that that was an impossible situation that he did an incredible 
incredible service too. You know, the stress, the tension, you know, when he first went to the employees and said, um, I can, um, we're going to work on getting a flight, maybe two planes um, to come in, 747s, all volunteer crew again, and I can evacuate you and your immediate family. Mm -hmm. Well, in the United States, in America, we have a definition of what an immediate family is. That's not the definition that the Vietnamese <laughs> use. Yeah. And so um, for what he thought might have been three, four hundred people was almost like it was over 700, almost a thousand people. And he knew he couldn't get that many people out. So then it was also the stress of having to tell people, I can't take everybody. I can't I can't do that. I just you know, Al is an amazing man. He's he's a he's 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 got a calm demeanor but you know he will, he will tell you that inside his his stomach was churning he was constantly stressing and not thinking how do i do this how do i get these people out and then this inspiration came in from the operation baby lift and um and and he did it he pulled it off um at the last moments and and with the ability of getting so many people out who to this day he remains in um constant contact with the people that worked in his office in Saigon. Um, he also, um, as is depicted in the movie, his assistant chose not to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and because he had a family, his parents were elderly and he couldn't leave them. And he had a young family. Um, he, his assistant was aware that because he worked for an American company, it would be likely be that he would be tortured or killed. But Al had to say goodbye to him on the tarmac before ascending the stairs to leave on the last flight out. Um, I think it was 1986 when Al was working in the Pan Am building that he got a message that his assistant was alive and needed help to get out. Mm -hmm. And Al went back and got him out. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of loyalty that he that is Al Topping. Mm -hmm. Incredible. I feel like that is that point was where we sort of uh, ended the conversation during the happy hour. So I'm intrigued to hear what was the next step for Pan Am? How, how did the relationship with the military continue? There was sort of, a, you know, after the Vietnam War, you know, things sort of dried up for a time, you know, you get into other conflicts, Desert Storm, uh, all up to, to its dissolution in 91. But what, what was happening in those those years? Well, Pan Am's role, especially with the craft program, which, um, you know, um, Pan Am participated in, uh, which was uh, a program uh, where the military could kind of um, request or require use of aircraft and the aircraft were conversion. They had, I remember going to the hangar one time and a friend of mine showing me how they would convert the aircraft, you know, into military operation and the, the, pulling the seats out and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but Pan Am can served in both both desert storm wars and and john m were you involved in any of those flights i was indeed i flew oh, over so. 30 minutes in and out of uh saudi arabia and kuwait during a desert storm um and that was a crap operation at its at, at its finest finest flower i tell you it was and it was a heck of an operation we staged out of <clears throat> excuse me, staged out of uh, Rome Fiumicino. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, we had crews rotating in and out of there. All of uh, the craft operations stopped at uh, Fiumicino for uh, change of crews and uh, fuel uplift and <clears throat> catering and so on. And from there, we'd we'd go down into uh, well, the close to the war zone that we could get. We operated in and out of um, several military bases in Saudi Arabia and also into Kuwait. Uh, um, that was that. That was another fantastic operation. Then, um, as you know, the the Desert Storm operation didn't last very long. I think the entire war was about less than twelve weeks. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we'd go down and pick up the GIs that we'd flown in there a couple of months before and flew them back to where we started. All these military bases in uh, in the U.S. and in the Midwest and in the South and so on. And uh, boy, that was uh, being a part of that was pretty incredible too. I can remember bringing these guys back. Um, in some cases, uh, the same individuals that I took over um, weeks before were going back on my same airplane to the same place, and um, we had a uh, we carried a in addition to the, our full operating crew, we carried a a flight mechanic with us on all those trips. Um, Joe Edanunzio, I remember, was one of the guys, and he was a real patriot, and he carried a huge American flag uh, within these stashed in the back of the cockpit. And when we'd land back in the in, at the military bases in the Midwest and the South and Texas and everywhere, bringing these guys home, we land and and as we tacked in, Al would get uh, or Joe would get up on his stand up in the jump seat behind me, open the upper hatch and stick this American flag on and hold it up there as we were taxiing in. And of course, the entire contingent of the base was there to meet the airplane, not just the families but everybody. And there was always a brass band there to meet the airplane. It was an incredible operation. And, uh, <laughs> of course, flying over there in the first place was an exercise in itself. That's, that's a whole other story. Um, How were the landings and takeoffs? Were they as harrowing as, as Vietnam? Well, <laughs> I remember going into... Um, airport in Saudi Arabia with that we were carrying a bunch of uh, material not troops but um, helicopter parts and truck parts and all you know military uh, material <clears throat> and uh, we were going into uh, one of the garden spots there called King Kali military city makes you really want to break out your bathing suit and have your Mai Tais isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, we were in our briefings when we left Rome, uh, we were told and under no circumstances deviate from the published flight plan or from the airways in, in Saudi airspace. Well, we, um, we flew down the, um, the, the Red Sea before we turned it uh, into Saudi airspace. And um, we had to report to the U.S. Navy, feet wet and feet dry and everything. And then um, we got into Saudi airspace and we couldn't make contact with anybody. <clears throat> and so we were following our flight, which 
uh, flew into Saudi Arabia and then made about a 60 degree left turn to go up to the military base. And there was a thunderstorm sitting right over the intersection of the airway. And I was trying to get permission from Saudi uh, air traffic control to deviate around this thing. And I couldn't make contact with anybody. Hmm. And I sure as hell wasn't going to fly through it. So I said, hell with it. So I deviated <clears throat> and then uh, headed toward King College Military City and flew into a sandstorm. It was like flying into a, into a sandbox. Mm-hmm. And we finally made contact with the uh, post controllers there, and they had an ILS, and we started down in that thing, and it was just, uh, like I said, it was like flying into a sandbox. And finally, at the last minute, I saw a black smudge uh, up ahead, which was the runway. That was the only thing I could see. And we landed, and um, of course, the, the base was just full of military aircraft and equipment and everything. And there were two or three other craft airplanes there. And we taxied in and we stopped. And uh, they rolled a, a, a stairway up to the L1 door. And this Air Force Colonel bounded up the steps and into the cockpit. And he said to me, he said, see that uh, big telephone pole-like thing over there with a rotating beacon on it and I said yeah it was a rotating red white beacon and he said if that beacon turns red you get your decontamination suits and get off this airplane as fast as you can and you go here and there and so on which meant there was an incoming scud missile or they were anticipating a scud attack on the on the on the field so they opened the cargo doors of the airplane, kicked that stuff out, and then closed it up, and we got out of there just as fast as we could. But uh, that, <laughs> that, was, that was another interesting operation. And interestingly enough, about um, that was in early 91, and a couple of years later, after Pan Am had, had ceased operation, I got this thing in the mail, and it was a medal from the Air Force for participating in desert storm <laughs> they mailed it to you they couldn't show up at the door and hand it to you no, no it just came in the mail to thank for your service and with a little citation and then this this medal that uh when i go to a formal dance now i put the medal on my tuxedo <laughs> <laughs> well deserved yeah so so this takes us up to 91 and and when pan am uh shut down uh was this a surprise for everybody was this you know something that was in the expected or was everybody just caught off guard uh i can tell i it it shocked me i i never expected it to shut down Mm -hmm. delta had committed itself had committed to supporting uh pan am's um we we called it the new pan am which was going to be we said it was returning troops, which was a north-south operation into Central America and the Caribbean and South America, with a vastly scaled-down operation. But they they uh, committed to supporting that. Mm-hmm. And then, literally on the courthouse steps on December fourth, they said, "Sorry, changed my mind." And you can't tell me that wasn't their plan all along. I have 
I have never had any respect for Delta Airlines ever since. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think people believed or wanted to believe that Pan Am would continue as a smaller airline. And it was disheartening even for that to see that when the, um, you know, through the 80s, we saw the kind of dismantling of the airline and this, this with the sale of the Pacific routes. And then, you know, and after, unfortunately, you know, the, the bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland was really a, a blow to the bow. It, it was, you know, something it, the airline couldn't come back from really. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Right it, it really, it really was. Um, people were not flying Pan Am. As I mentioned before, we were, you know, we were proud to represent our country. We represented our company and our country. And with that big aircraft, you know, big blue uh, aircraft uh, ball on the, on the tail, the Pan Am blue ball where the American flag on the tail, um, it was unmistakable, it was undeniable that Pan Am represented the United States throughout the world. And unfortunately, we also then became a target. Mm -hmm. um, we just, the, the Museum Foundation, we just did a podcast with Russell Ray, who was the last CEO of Pan Am. Um, and he, he, uh, he tells, you know, his, he has a great firsthand account of what happened, how it happened, and the timeline in which it happened. And um, we just published yesterday an interview with an FBI um, in a CIA operative, both men were, and one is an attorney for families of the victims of one or three, and both were involved with that uh, investigation. And um, both will tell you, you know, there was so much more involved and involved CIA that involved um, a lot of operations, covert operations that were going on. There were several CIA operatives on board the aircraft. So it's never known if it was a target for, for more than one reason. Gotcha. But also to go back to a point that you meant throughout the 80s, you know, you know the, there was this time of peace as far as military operations was concerned. But, you know, Pan Am continued its service and, and John Am was involved in this as well. And that throughout, oh God, from the early 60s and even before, but not in official capacity, Pan Am operated which were what were called presidential press charters. And that a Pan Am aircraft, whether it was a 707 or 747 uh, later on, accompanied the president and Air Force One around the world for all the official presidential trips. And John M. was one of the captains that flew um, in accompaniment. And, and again, he's got these amazing stories of flying with Air Force One, um, you know, on to, to these destinations, wherever the president flew on behalf of, you know, of the country and, and negotiations. So it, it was, uh, was still in service, even though it wasn't necessarily a military operation, but Pan Am was still in service to the U.S., to the United States. Also, uh, Pan Am was a corporation and we had a subsidiary. We were a guided missile uh, support uh, for, for tracking and maintenance in Florida. So that also comes into the mix with the involvement with the American government, hmm. which we sold off, we sold off that subsidiary uh, in the mid, mid 80s as well. Yeah. Very interesting. So uh, lead me up to uh, the museum foundation. It's, it's founding. How did that, uh, how did the foundation come about and what is its mission? Well, our mission is to preserve uh, the history and legacy of the airline 
and the people, because really it is about, it is the story of the people, starting with Juan Tripp, this incredible visionary who really created an airline that I don't think we will ever see the likes of again. Um, it was a moment in time, and it's a moment of history. And what Juan Tripp accomplished in setting the foundation uh, and building up this global enterprise, because it was more than an airline. It, as John mentioned, there were so many other enterprises that were encompassed. Um, so we we set about to tell the story of the people mm. of Pan Am. Uh, so it's more. It's not just an an air aviation museum. It it is about history and being woven into the tapestry of the United States history. Um, but it was found. I'm sorry. I was going to say it's different than the historical foundation, right? Oh, we are two separate organizations. Mm -hmm. We have similar missions and we work in close collaboration with one another um, because uh, the historical foundation founded um, right after the bankruptcy in, in 91, I believe, um, was founded by Ed Tripp, who is the son of Juan Tripp, the founder. He's the youngest surviving son. Um, but we work in close collaboration with them and um, in that we are a physical presence um, we have exhibits. Um, that was that was our purpose. You know, thirty. It was twenty five years after the close of Pan Am that the museum foundation was established. Um, myself and another flight attendant named Andrea Sider um, set about sending about set about to um, accumulate the information that we needed to file with the IRS and form a five hundred one c three non for profit organization. And you know when we did when we did that, it was like, oh, that worked. <laughs> and so now we go on. And um, 2016 was our first full year of operation. Mm -hmm. uh, we um, established uh, a relationship with the Cradle of Aviation, which is an existing museum on Long Island in um, Garden City, Long Island. Um, it's a wonderful museum, and we rent space from them. Uh, we didn't know when we started this if there would be interest. We kind of said, let's let's start off small and see if we can attract a following. Well, wow, <laughs> there was quite an interest. And it's not just from the Pan Am community, even though they are incredibly supportive and participate and participate in all of our events, as has been stated before in the program. Uh, but between our social media outlets, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, our own podcast program, uh, we have a worldwide audience of you know probably 70, 80,000 people who wow. are interested in these stories. We have um, 30 some episodes of our podcast program published to date, and they've been downloaded about 80,000 times in 121 countries around the world. That's incredible. It, 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 it just is a testament to the fact that there is such interestry in the history of this incredible, iconic company. Mm -hmm. So yes, we, we want to preserve this legacy. We're, as you could attest, as you can hear from, from John L and John M and I, that we are passionate about this history and that it is, we do not want it to be a footnote on a page in a history book. We want there to be tangible evidence of what this airline and its people accomplished throughout the last century. We think that's an important story to tell. We think it should be told in many venues, not just at our museum, but you know, at the Air Force Museum, um, at, at, in history books. Um, 
the fact that Pan and people were taken hostage and prisoner of war during World War II. That's not, there's very little known about that. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little known about Pan Am's operation. People like you, and thank you, Sean, for, and uh, the Veterans Breakfast Club for making the story of Pan Am's involvement in military operations throughout the last century something that is known now, something that mm -hmm. there's public awareness about. Because the people who participated, they deserve a recognition and acknowledgement for their service. Certainly, and we're happy to do that. Um, and so that you said there there are exhibits. So where can if someone say, "Oh, I want to dive into this. I want to go see you know the physical space." Where where can people go? As I mentioned, we are located within. We are a museum within museum, located at the Cradle of Aviation Museum, which is in Garden City, Long Island, and that is on Charles Lindbergh Boulevard. Um, and it is at the site where Charles Lindbergh actually took off on the spirit of St. Louis for Paris. Mm -hmm. um, interesting uh, interesting little tidbit. It is also where Juan Tripp, the founder of Pan Am, first met or first saw Charles Lindbergh and knew right off the bat, I need him to work for me. Mm -hmm. And when, when Lindbergh came back from his trip and his you know parade down Fifth Avenue and his, um, you know, the fame and fortune there, um, he did go to work for Pan Am. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, the two had an incredible partnership throughout. And, and I think John M. I think you also had Charles Lindbergh in the in the um, cockpit on occasion on a flight or two. Uh, no, I I I never had Lindbergh on my flight, but okay. uh, my wife uh, had uh, had him on a couple of her flights. Yeah, he flew. He he remained very loyal and and and, and mm -hmm. flew Pan Am frequently. Uh, but yeah, so we we are open um, Tuesday to to Sunday, closed on Mondays. Um, from 10 to 5. And, you know, not only um, do we, we have about seven exhibits right now, and they all really kind of chronologically tell the story. There is a, um, and John worked, John L. worked meticulously for about 18 months detailing the events on a, for a timeline that we opened in 2021. Uh, um, that is, it's on a 22 foot wall, long wall, and it tells the, the 64 years, the pivotal events of the 64 years of pain and history. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we, we talk about the history of the airline, and we right now it's kind of reflected through the, the aircraft and the people that uh, were specific to a certain era in Pan Am's history. So we start with the B-314, we talk about the Stratocruiser, we talk about the 707 and the dawn of the jet age, and then of course the jumbo jet and the 747. And they can find out, anybody can find out more information uh, on the panammuseum.org, the panammuseum.org. That is it, www.thepanammuseum.org. That is our website, yes. Um, we, Like I said, we are on social media. You can find us on Facebook and follow us there. We are. You know, we have daily posts, sometimes two or three posts a day, uh, talking about specific moments in history, but also about people. And um, that seems to have attracted quite an incredible following, um, mm -hmm. as well as listen to our podcasts too, which are available through our website on, or else on your favorite podcast platform. I'll make sure to put the link to that also in the description. And how can someone support your mission? Are there ways to donate? Absolutely. Um, uh, through those outlets that I just mentioned, either through our website, there's a donate page. And, um, we can certainly use all the support. Um, as being a physical brick and mortar museum, 
building exhibits is costly. Um, we, we want to pay tribute to the airline. Uh, Pan Am was considered a premier first-class airline. And so our exhibits need to also um, be in the same um, fashion. They need to be first-class premier exhibit type. So we really spend a lot of time and due diligence working with a great design team to put those together, but they are costly. So yes, you can contribute through the website, www.pnmuseum.org. Um, we also have opportunities to donate through um, the social media outlets. Um, we've also got a, a great retail store called The Hangar, uh, and we sell merchandise, which also supports the mission of the museum. Excellent. Um, well, I, you know, I want to thank you all for joining again on the scuttlebutt here, uh, and and I hope that we can continue an, uh, further the conversation uh, in some way, shape, or form. Again, back maybe back to our happy hour Zoom program, John Marshall. You alluded to how many different stories there were of of these different conflicts that you were flying in and out of. So we didn't get a chance to dive into that. That'd be very interesting. Uh, but there's definitely even more history that we we didn't even touch on in this hour. So uh, happy to have you all back on again to to talk more Pan Am. Thank you, Sean. John M. could write a book and should write a book. <laughs> That's what we say at BBC. Every veteran should write a book. So, John, are you are you uh, getting on one? Well, I wrote a column uh, for uh, a magazine called Airways Magazine, which is devoted to commercial aviation. I wrote a monthly column for them for a number of years. Um, and I've kind of put those together in the do-it-yourself book. I think Linda has a copy of that. And... Uh, yeah, and I've also uh, been working over the years on a, on a novelization of um, Bob Ford's Around the World Flight, which there again is a whole other story. Excellent. Um, John L, too, thank you so much for taking the time here. Uh, Linda, John M, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to... Yeah. To get this out, uh, get this out to everybody as our audience. Please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean S H A U N at VeteransBreakfastClub.org. Check out the links in the description here uh, to to see all things Pan Am and our previous conversations. Links to those uh, discussions and chats. Uh, uh, thank you all again. Just a, a wonderful hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Sean. you. You bet. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction, and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D&D &D Auto Salvage, Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to DND. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit, and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever 1 800 quit now. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, 
and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.